Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Yeah, I don't try to hide it. I just try to be who I am because that's who God created me to be. Are you guys okay with that? And so I, I just can't preach with shoes on. I always preach barefoot. Um, even when there's eight inches of snow outside, I still got to preach barefoot. I can't help it. Um, and that's when we're preaching outside and there's eight inches of snow, <laughs> not just inside. Um, and uh, so a couple peculiar things about me. I always, in a setting like this, I try to use words that you guys would understand. But sometimes I just don't, and so I use, I refer to Jesus as Yeshua. Is that okay with you guys? Okay. Um, sometimes I, I refer to God as Papa. We were told to uh, Abba is what it, the Hebrew word for that, but Papa is the closest thing for me. So I refer to Papa, and that's God. Sometimes Yehovah Elohim Almighty. Um, I might say Yeshua HaMashiach, that's Yeshua our Messiah. Um, I might say Ruach HaKadosh, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, would, would that make sense if I use that language with you guys? Cool, because um, it, it was funny. I was invited to open prayer at a, at a meeting, and I didn't know anybody there. And <laughs> it was funny, because I kept wanting to say Yeshua instead of Jesus. And I would pause, and I'm like, oh, the, I don't know if you'll know who I'm talking about. And so I kept pausing as I was praying, and then when I got done, some nice gentleman came up to me and he says, it's okay, public speaking is very difficult. <laughs> 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 so that was funny. I'm glad you guys can laugh because I did too. But um, with that, I just want to, I like to pray. Papa, I can feel your presence amongst us. It makes me happy. It makes me glad. I'm excited to be amongst your people. And Lord, it, it, it's something special when your body comes together in a greater wholeness. And so, Lord, move amongst us with freedom this morning. In Yeshua's name, amen. So, um, what's on my heart to share with you guys today, um, I usually would do in a series and... Um, it would usually be probably like six to eight hours of teaching. And I was looking at it going, I don't know how to cram all this in. And so in trying to prepare, um, it's been really busy. And so I scratched out two hours of time to try and prepare something and squeeze everything down. And all I got was the Lord let me type up some scriptures and that's it. And I felt like he was telling me, just share what's in your heart. I put it there to begin with anyways. And so... The only notes I have is the scripture, and I'm trusting the Lord will do something with that. And um, generally, my biggest problem is rambling on for too long. So I got myself a timer here, and hopefully we'll do okay. <laughs> so um, there's something that I do with our fellowship, and uh, I ask them, what is the church? And they respond, I am. And I say, how is that? And they say, because the I am lives in me. You know, 
the church, this is a beautiful building, I love it, but it's not the church. It's a place where the church comes, and you are the church. And so everywhere you go, you're having church. Does that make sense? When you're in the grocery store, you're having yourself some church. When you're at the gas station, you're having some church. One thing, um, uh, I, used, I used to live in San Diego, and there's a lot of traffic in Southern California. And uh, traffic can be really frustrating sometimes, until I realized, I'm the church. You've got a huge congregation here for me, Lord. And so I used to, um, I used to drive truck, and I was stuck in traffic in L.A., the, the heart of L.A. on the 405, and it was not moving. Traffic hadn't moved for about 10 minutes. It was just gridlocked. And so I opened the door, and I turned the music up in my cab, and I stood out on the step, and I just started singing. Uh, you know why? Because I'm the church. <laughs> and what do you do at church? You sing the praises of God. And um, then I just started praying for people randomly, like, Miss, over there in that white Mercedes, I just want to pray for you and your, your marriage and your children and different things. And it was amazing how things began to shift in that atmosphere. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, you are the church. And so expect that everywhere you go, that you can shift the atmosphere. It's not because of who you are, it's because of who is in you, right? And so I just wanted to do this this morning. Hopefully you guys can help them. I'll say, what is the church? You say, I am. Proclaim it. I am. How is that? Because the I am lives in me. You guys want to try that? Okay. What is the church? I am. And how is that? Because the I am lives in me. Oh, that's awesome. Let's do it one more time. What is the church? I am. And how is that? Oh, that makes me happy. I got God bumps. That's cool. <laughs> and so, um, I can't, I always walk around. Does that bother anybody? I just can't stand still. So, um, I want to talk about communion, but also um, in understanding what's being said, you got to understand the mindset of the people it was spoken to, you know? Um, an example that I think is it's somewhat funny, but on the other hand, it's really tragic and sad. But, um, you know, you all remember the Flintstones? And they got their little theme of whatever it is, and at the end it says, well, have a gay old time, right? That means something a little bit different today than it did back then, right? Um, fortunately, Fred and Barney were married, um, or it could mean something a lot different, you know? And so, not to each other. They had wives. <laughs> Fred and Barney had wives as Wilma and whoever else. But anyhow, a gay old time means something radically different today than it did, and it wasn't that long ago, you know? And so, um, there's th some things that we read in Scripture that if we don't understand the culture and the understanding of the people, the mindset where they came from, we're not really going to understand what was taking place. Does that make sense? And so there's some things with communion that I just, um, we don't fully grasp it because we don't understand some things in the culture of the people of the day. And so I want to read a little scripture and then I'll try and explain that better. But if you've got your Bibles or on the screen, Matthew 
chapter 26. We're going to look at verses 26 through 29. Yeah. And then I, I usually speak out of the New King James. Uh, is that okay with everybody? Cool. So verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say to you, that, this, that's an important, right? If Yeshua says, I say to you, we should probably listen. You know, like he's already talking and we should be listening, but then he reemphasizes, I say to you, he's doing something different, and we need to understand um, but I say to you, I will not drink of this, the fruit of the vine from now on, on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Isn't that cool? He, see, that's part of that statement there. He's going to drink it again with you in his Father's kingdom, which means we are going to his kingdom. That's pretty awesome, amen? That's pretty cool. And then uh, if you flip over to Mark chapter 14... We're going to look at verses 22 to 25. This is all pretty, these are going to be pretty much the same, but we get a little bit different um, spice from each one. So in verse 22, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to him, them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. P part of that is letting you know they all drank out of one cup, and that's important. He took it and said, divide this cup amongst yourselves. They didn't all have their own cup. So he took a cup, and he said, divide it amongst yourselves. Do you all see that? Um, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, so He says he took the cup after supper. So, so there is a supper, and then there's another cup. Um, okay. Was I in verse 20? I lost my place. Okay. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Okay, so to get an understanding of what's going on here, this is, they're celebrating Passover, right? Y'all know what Passover is? 
from Exodus, and they slaughtered the lamb, took the blood, put it on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over, right? And so um, what is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. And so the blood was to take away the consequences of sin, right? If you put it over, the wages of sin is death. And so there's this connection here. When John the Baptist was out baptizing, you know, crazy John with the grasshoppers, um, he, said, he was the first one to recognize it. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. So, you know, even if you had a lamb for Passover, it couldn't take your sin away. It, it, could, it would just, it was remission. You, you could make remission for your sins, but you couldn't take it away. And see, if you, if you have something like cancer, you, you'd get really happy if you're in remission, right? Like you've gone into remission, it's no longer actively spreading. And so if it's no longer actively spreading, there may be some there, but it's not spreading anymore and we call that remission, right? And so we would be happy for remission because it's no longer actively branching out within our body. And so the only thing that was available was you could take your lamb and you could uh, sacrifice it and there may, it made remission for your sin. But what... John the Baptist was explaining, he says, Behold, this is a declaration I'm speaking to all of you. Something radicalous. That right there. That is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Wouldn't it be cool like if you had cancer and you're hoping for remission and they come back and they say, Hey, it's not remission. It's taken away. Meaning there's not even any dead sails in there. It, the Lord took it away completely and what all the damage that it's done has been restored because it's been taken away. And that's what uh, John the Baptist knew and he was saying about Yeshua is, behold, here's the lamb that takes away. That was the first open public declaration of who he really was. And so at Passover, um, the meal is called the Seder meal. And... Um, the Seder meal is very ordered in structures. There's things that you do at certain times and there's things that you don't do at certain times and there's other things where you do things that are really important and then there's a time where there's not, you're just kind of casually hanging out. And uh, it's really crazy because the Jews have been doing this thing for millennia and they have three, um, three pieces of bread. And they wrap it in cloth. And then the one in the middle is pulled out and it's broken in half. And the other two are used during the meal. But these, this one is special. The, the half of that is they take it and they hide it. The, the, whoever's the head of the Seder takes it and he hides it somewhere. The, after the meal, you know, you, you have your meal and there's certain things, scriptures that you read. And then that, that piece is hidden away. And then the kids come back and they get to look for it. They get to look everywhere and try and find that half that was taken away. And the kid who finds it brings it to the head of the Seder. Says, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then there's a reward that's given to the child. Um, they get a gift. And so then that last half of bread is then... It's very special. And then that is what you use for the last cup of the Seder meal, the last, the last cup of wine for the Seder meal. 
is drank with that half a loaf. Does that sound cool? Um, and so Yeshua is talking like we were here, and he, he's, this, is, this is the stuff that's happening after the meal, after the supper. And the whole, everything in the Seder meal is actually pointing to Yeshua. Everything that's on the table, and I don't have time to get into everything that's on the table, but it all points to him. And so you, and there's certain things that you do while you're eating the meal, and it's not about because you're hungry and you need something to eat. The Seder meal is about so that you remember and you know everything that's in Scripture. That's, that's what it's about. So it usually takes about two hours to get through the meal because you're not there in a hurry. And then you get to this point, and then it's after supper, everything shifts and changes. And so what Yeshua, what he, the bread that he took was the after meal bread. The cup that he took was the after meal cup. Because, and that's the cup that he said, I'm not drinking of this anymore, and he changes everything. So we got all that, right? Does everybody understand? So we'll hit pause there, and we're going to talk about something else which is radically different, and that, that this is the mindset. See, most of our understanding, we, we, in Western civilization and in America, we have a Greek mindset, um, which means we look at everything from a Greek perspective, the way the Greeks did. The Greeks were intellectuals. Um, a lot of the super smart people who, from the Greco empire, we still herald them today as as being wise or what have you. And so our architecture, if you look at any of our state buildings, our architecture is all Greek too. Um, the Romans just adopted the Greek ideologies and architecture and gods and everything else. But we, we tend to have a Greek mindset at the way we look and interpret scripture as well. So it's kind of cool. You ever, um, we got the kids here, so that's fun. You guys remember being in school and your teacher would say, okay, you gotta put on your thinking caps. Anybody ever remember that? So I just want to encourage us today. Take off your Greek mindset and set it over here and put on your Hebrew mindset. Your, and if you could do that, you all feel like you can do that? Okay, so that means we're going to choose to look at things slightly differently. And so um, there's this thing called betrothal. Anybody ever heard of betrothal? Um, and so a betrothal is kind of like... Um, what we would think of getting engaged, you know. But in our, in our Greek mindset of getting engaged, it's where a young man comes, well, I don't know if this happens anymore because our culture is so messed up. But where a young man would come and he'd get on a knee and he would say, will you marry me, right? And it's usually just the two of them in some romantic place and uh, he proposes, right? And even that language, he is proposing something to you. I have something I want to propose to you. And then you have to respond whether you accept that proposal, that idea that was presented, right? And so things worked a little bit different in the ancient biblical culture. That didn't happen. The young man seeking it out would go to the young woman's father and talk to him and, hey, like, usually this doesn't happen until you've been dating for a long time. And then it's like, oh, I want to induce you to my parents, right? We have some things extremely backwards. See, it, before the young man begins pursuing the young woman, he should go to her father first. And, Do I have permission to pursue your daughter? Do I have permission? 
And so the proposal first goes to the father before it ever goes to the young woman. And then they would have a talk. The father and the young man would have a, have a talk, a meeting, and um, come to an agreement because dating wasn't a thing. And I'll just hit, I'll give you this nugget. I don't believe in dating um, because it's what you practice for. What are you practicing for? If you go to baseball and, and you're learning how to bat, what does the coach always tell you? Keep your eye on the ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball all the way through. Now imagine you're there, the pitcher's right out there, and up behind you over your shoulder is a big nest up in a telephone pole or something like that. Maybe it's an eagle's nest, right? And if you're batting, the coach wouldn't tell you, keep your eye on the eagle's nest, right? He would say, keep your eye on the ball. And so marriage is supposed to be a lifelong covenant between two people. And so we should, if you practice, if in your practice you're looking over your shoulder, you're not going to be very good at hitting the ball, are you? And so um, we should be practicing. The most important thing we should be practicing for is marriage. Would you agree? There's an attack against marriage. There's an attack against the family. And so we should be practicing for a lifelong covenant before the throne of God. And so marriage, I mean, dating is, hey, I want to date you for a little while, and then I'll date you for a little while, and then I'll date you for a little while. And um, these statistics are kind of old. But um, in our society, most kids, by the time they get to junior high, have had three boyfriends or girlfriends. And it's usually in junior high that they have their first serious relationship where their heart gets broken, shattered. And then by the time your average kid makes it to high school, they have had their heart broken at least five times and have been in at least a dozen relationships. That is practicing for divorce. And your average kid, by the time they're 17 years old, their heart has been encased to protect themselves, and it's almost impossible for anybody to get in. And so by the time you get to where you're ready to get married and have a relationship, you're not meeting the genuine person. You're meeting the mask that they've put up to protect themselves. And so it is very easy for them when they get married and things don't go well, they get married and they begin to see past the mask at who that person really is. It's very easy for them because by the time the average person gets married, they practice for divorce between 20 and 60 times. Does that make sense? Dating is practicing for divorce. And so I like the way, and, and you see parents generally only know about 3% of the relationships that their kids have. And so, with that, I like the way they used to do it. The young man would go and talk to the father and say, is it okay? The father might be like, no, you're a bum, get out of here. <laughs> or he might go, all right, there's stipulations here. And part of it is, you don't get to just uh, go in a relationship and get physical or anything else. You don't get to touch her. And you need to get to know each other. And um, so there are... There are guidelines and ground rules that are laid out. And at that first conversation that the young man comes to the father, he 
proposes to him, it's not that I want to date your daughter because that didn't exist. I want to marry her. See, it starts at the beginning with marriage. Marriage isn't something that's tacked on eventually when you found the right person. It's something that starts from the beginning. And so the young man goes to the father, and the only way he gets to spend time with the girl is if the father says, yes, you can marry her. Okay? And so when there's agreement, and it would be written up, it's a, it's a written document that, of an agreement between the young man and the father and a witness. And see, this agreement goes on kind of behind doors. And then the groom, the, 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 the to-be groom, has a meal and prepares the table. And at that table that he's prepared and he's going to invite um, his parents would usually be there. The young girl's parents would be there. Maybe a couple of very close people. We have this idea of bridesmaids, right? And groomsmen. It used to be something more than just putting on a nice dress or a suit and standing with people in front while you said your vows. If you chose to be a bridesmaid, then however long it took from this meeting until you walk down the aisle, they are watching over you to protect you. That's what a bridesmaid is. A maid serves. And a groomsman, from the day of this meal together, those groomsmen are there to help the groom accomplish whatever agreement he made with the father. Their role could go on for years. Okay? And so that's who would be invited to this table. And um, that is called a betrothal. It's where you're going to get betrothed, is at this meal. See, meals are important. We don't understand a culture. But if you go to the Middle East today, you, maybe you have a business meeting, and you're meeting with people, and you can sit down with people from the Middle East, but they won't eat with you. They will either have showed up early, and they've eaten, or they've come not, they've ate before they got there, or they're going to wait, and they're going to eat after, but they won't eat with you. Why? Because having a meal together is coming into one we're choosing to eat and partake. As our words are transpiring before us, the food is a part of that, and I'm choosing to take that into myself. Part of you, I am partaking and putting it in my body. And meals are important. I think it's really sad that most American families don't sit down and eat together anymore. You know, there's something powerful that happens there. And so during this betrothal meeting, the agreement between the father and the son will be laid out before everybody there. And everybody is witnesses to this agreement. And then uh, the groom would have a cup. And that cup would be a very special cup. It's not any cup. This, that, that would be the potential groom's ceremonial cup that he drinks from during special times and celebrations and feasts and during Shabbat. Everybody would know that is the young man's cup. And so, in a betrothal meal, part of that covenant is uh, you pour the cup, pour, 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 and then he would stand up and hold it in his right hand, and he would declare the agreement between him and the potential bride's father. That this is the agreement upon our marriage of what has to be done. And there's a dowry Right? We don't pay dowries anymore. But there's an agreed price for the bride. And that it, 
this, this is going to be paid. At the end of this betrothal meal, if everything is accepted, then it's paid to the father. The father gets his money, okay? And um, so there, that part isn't fully disclosed because that's between him, the groom, and the father. But then there's a gift. And so the terms are, part of the terms are laid out, the ones pertaining to the young woman. And then the groom takes his cup. This is his special cup. And he gives it to the young woman. And if she receives it from his hand, she is accepting his betrothal. And in the acceptance of that from his hand, the bride then drinks it all and turns it upside down to let everybody know, I accept the fullness of what you have brought to the table here. I receive it. And at that moment, when she turns the cup upside down, that is a legal declaration that they are now legally united. From that moment on, the groom is legally responsible for the bride. And there is, a, a, on top of the dowry, there is what's called, um, there's a gift that goes to the father. Because, see, the father may say, hey, you, you have to be able to provide for my daughter the same way I have provided for her. And so, I'm not going to let you go be a vagabond just wandering. I want, you need to have a place for her. You need to go prepare a place for my bride, my daughter. And some young men, that's not easy. They may be like, hey, I don't want to let that one get away, so I'm, I'm putting a down payment. <laughs> but I'll, I'm going to come back for her. And it wouldn't, oftentimes, young men, if they didn't have a way to make money, they would hire themselves out to go to war as soldiers. That was a very common way to make money back in the day. And they may be gone for 5, 10, 15 years. And if you've been in war or if you've been, maybe you go into construction and we, if you think construction is hard work today, <laughs> my body hurts from doing construction for a lot of years. But if you think it's hard today, imagine doing it a few thousand years ago. And there are accidents that take place. You, if you've aged 10, 15, 20 years, when you come back, you might not look exactly the same. You may look a little different, right? And so... Um, Part of what is paid is the groom pays something to the father to take care of the potential bride because she is now his responsibility. It's his responsibility to take care of her, and it's the father's responsibility to make sure that she remains pure until he comes back. And so all this has been agreed. The groom presents it, and, and if she pours the cup, after that, after the betrothal meal, he presents to her a gift. So the groom gives her a gift, and she's supposed to hold on to that until he comes back. And that would be a betrothal meal. It all happens around a table. Does that make sense? Now, for centuries before Yeshua is having this Seder meal, this Passover with his disciples, what I was talking about before with the bread and you got the three loaves and they're all divided, that, that actually goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Um, and this is where I wish I had time to unravel all these things for you, but we just don't. But um, the, th the three measures of meal, you'll find that all through Scripture. And so 
after the Seder, and he's talked about everything that's happened, I just want you to know, Passover is more for you today than it ever was for the Jews. Okay? It's not a Jewish thing. How many of you guys want to be part of the New Covenant? Passover is where it became yours. It's not a Jewish thing. It, it, it is for Jews as well. It's for everybody. But the, but the Passover is for anybody that wants to be the bride. Okay? And so, um, Yeshua takes the Afrikim, the other half. And out of that, it represents himself. You have three loaves. Why? Because you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Who's in the middle of that? Yeshua. And that bread is going to be broken in half. They've been doing this for thousands of years, not knowing the significance of what's happening. The Son is the only loaf that gets broken. The others don't. And so He takes that broken piece the one that was hidden away, and the children have found, what does he say? Come to me as little children. If we understood, come to me as the little children do, they go out to search for the Afrikim, and then they, when they find it, they have so much joy to come running back. Come to me as little children. Why? Because when they come back with that Afrikim, they know they're getting a reward of some kind, they know there is a prize. And so there's more to when he says, come to me as little children. He's saying, come to me as little children because I have something very special for you. And so, that peace. See, our bridegroom king has been taken away from us. But he is coming back. Okay? So the cup, he gives the cup to the potential bride. Right? She, in, in his declaration at the betrothal, is, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until I come back for you. Why? Because I have to go out, and I, there's a bunch of stuff that i got to do to meet the requirements of your father. And it may be years, and I'm not going to make any decisions based on the intoxication of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to be found in foolishness and sleeping around with some other girl when my heart is longing for you. Does that make sense? I will not drink of this until I come back for you. See, this is part of the betrothal. And then the, the bride takes that cup and she now, at every Shabbat, that's Friday night at sundown. If you were a faithful Jew, you're celebrating Shabbat every Friday at sundown. She doesn't drink from her cup anymore. She drinks from his cup. And everybody will know whose cup that is. Every one of the feasts, when she goes, she drinks from her cup that she got from her bridegroom king. It's to let every potential suitor know that she has been called for and there is somebody who is legally responsible for her and the cup is the declaration that my betrothed bridegroom is coming back for me. So don't even think about it. That's what that cup means. And so when he says, take in remembrance of me. Remember, I'm giving you something. I want you to remember I'm coming back for you. It may be a while, but I am coming back. 
And that's what the cup is. And for centuries, the Jewish people all over the world had been breaking this bread, breaking this bread. And they got the Afikim and they're hiding it. And they are, the, it, it, it is, there is, how many guys like prophecy? You guys like prophecy? Um, we look in the Word, and most of our understanding about prophecy is from, again, from a Greek mindset. It's, I'm going to say something that's going to happen in the future, and that's prophecy, right? But what we don't understand is the, there's another form of prophecy called pattern and fulfillment. Okay? Something happened, it's a pattern of something that's going to be fulfilled. And so, pattern and fulfillment prophecy actually shows us the heart of God. And so the more time something is patterned, the more it tells us that is dear to his heart. Does that make sense? So it's, a, it's prophecy of pattern and fulfillment. Um, you were created, well, we're associated to mankind. So humankind was created. If you got a belly button, you were born. But we were created for Jehovah. That's what we were created for. And so that is, marriage was instituted by God. He's the one who started it in the beginning. As soon as he had, he, he had Adam, and then he had Eve, and I'd love to get into that and everything else. But as soon as he had him, he's like, hey, we can finally get to the whole reason why you're here. So you can get married. You see, there's something that was the desire of God's heart. There's nothing he needed. God doesn't need us, but there's a desire. And he was living in a place where he had everything he needed, but there was something he desired. And I believe when he created Adam and put him in the garden, Adam had everything he needed. But there was something he desired. When he looked around, there's, he and, there's, there's Mr. and Mrs. Ostrich, and Mr. and Mrs. Gorilla, and Mr. and Mrs. Camel, and Mr. and Mrs. Penguin, but there's only a Mr. Me. And God's like, you got it, son. That's why I created you. The desire that's in your heart right now is why I created you. You are wanting somebody like you that you can love. And now you know why I created you. Because I want, I, there's nothing I need, but there's something I want to love and love me back. And that's why we were created. This whole thing. And then the first thing God does when, when he has two humans, is he says, you guys need to get married. Why? Because that also is pointing to why I created you. My plan is to be married to you. And so marriage was set in motion by the creator of the universe. And then we sinned. And created this distance. And so part of the betrothal agreement between the son and the father was you got to make the bride pure. The dowry payment for you, for humanity, was the cross. And because that was preordained, it was set in motion, the Jews have been breaking the bread, breaking the bread, breaking the bread not realizing that they are prophesying in pattern and fulfillment what the dowry price for all of humanity was going to be. 
during the Seder meal about the Passover where the angel of death will pass over if you have the blood. <laughs> because there's coming a dowry that is very dear to the heart of the creator of the universe that is going to allow the desire of his heart, the reason he created and set all this in motion, it, it is coming to a climax where the dowry is going to be paid. And then I can have my bride. And, and the Seder is all of that in a single meal as prophecy of pattern and fulfillment. And so there's something I like to say. The most prophetic act we can do is get married and stay married. The most prophetic act we can do is get married and stay married. Why? Because that's why we were created. It's what we were created for. Why do you think the enemy hates marriage? Why do you think divorce is so rampant? It destroys the family. And when the family breaks down, everything else breaks down around it. And our system is set up to get the father out of the home. You want help? Not as long as he's around. Why? They want to get God out. Does that make sense? So... This, what Yeshua does is in the middle of the Seder, he turns the Seder meal into a betrothal meal. And the apostles drank the cup on our behalf. And so we get to join with them. Do this in remembrance of me. I remember what you have done. I remember the covenant that was made before the throne of heaven and earth. And Yes, I come into agreement with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's powerful. It's powerful. Let's look at John real quick. Because, you know, you have what's called the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all, they all kind of flow together. And then you got John. So you got these three, they're all together, and then there's John. John always is talking about something different. And I want to clue you in on something. The Gospel of John is not written to you, at least the you that I can see. The Gospel of John is written to your spirit man. And that's why he talks about things much deeper. He, he's talking about things that apply to your spirit. Okay? And so he's going to talk about this account a little bit differently. He says, now before... Uh, sorry, John chapter 13, and we'll jump in at verse 1. 1 to 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice, whenever he was asked about divorce, he says, in the beginning it was not so. He didn't love them until it became uncomfortable. He didn't love them until it became difficult. He didn't love them until anything. He loved them to the end. Even though they killed him. So he loved them to the end. And the supper being ended, the devil had already been uh, put into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Now, there's a, at the beginning of the Seder meal, there's a ceremonial washing. 
and um, it, you, you have a little bowl, and you have a pitcher, and it has two handles on it, and you pick it up. It's not, it's not really for cleanliness. It's more for ceremony. And you pick it up by one, and you pour it over your hand, and then you pick it up by the other hand handle, and you pour it over this hand. And that, that, that would take place at the beginning of the Seder meal. But this is after the, the meal part, the, where they're getting ready for the Afikim part, where we're looking, and he's, he he's washes their feet. Why? Why? What? This is out of. He, he's gone from traditional Seder stuff. Why? Because that has been fulfilled. And of what Passover is. And now he's transitioning into something totally different. And this Passover Seder meal is about to become a betrothal meal instead. But um, why does he wash their feet? There's, no, there's nothing like that in the Seder. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll jump in at verse 24. 24 to 27. Um, this is Paul talking and he says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. What is the church? So just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So during this Seder slash betrothal, Yeshua shows us the example. See, because in marriage you have a husband and a wife. And Ephesians is pretty clear that the husband represents Messiah and the Christ represents the church, right? And Paul got instructions that says, wash your bride with water and the word. Who is the word of God? Yeshua is. So he's the word and he's taking water and washing the feet of the bride. Fulfilling what Paul wrote for us in Ephesians. Is that making sense? He says, he's, he's walking this out prophetically on, and at first Peter's like, what are you doing? What? He didn't understand. This is not the way the Seder meal goes. I've been going to him since I was a little boy. And this, some, this is not part of it. Everything about the Seder meal, it's ordered and it's structured and it's, it, it, it's regimented on how everything's supposed to go. What are you doing why are you washing my feet? This isn't part of the way things go. And Yeshua is letting us know, hey, something is about to change. You thought you knew, but something's about to change, and it's going to make everything you thought you knew radically different. And so we're going to jump back into John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And this is Yeshua talking. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That statement right there, if anybody ever tries to tell you Jesus never claimed to be God, just take him right there. You believe in God, believe also in me. If you want to look up the words, the root is, there's the way you believe in God, believe in me. Why would he open with that? Because I'm about to, there's something that you do because you know that God told you to do it. It's going all the way back to Moses, the law. You believe in God? 
believe in me also. And just as you faithfully have walked out these things that God spoke to Moses, walk out what I'm about to speak to you. Because just as that was a covenant, I'm about to bring a new covenant to you. And I have the authority to do that. Why? Because I'm on the same level as God. I am God. Not me. That's Yeshua. (laughs) Um, He's letting them know. Let not your heart be troubled that all these things are changing. Believe in God. You believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This just became a betrothal. Oh, there's my alarm. Okay, i got to hurry and wrap this up. Okay, so I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm coming back. I know I'm leaving, but don't worry. I am coming back. (laughs) And receive you to myself. This is betrothal language. This isn't Passover Seder language. This is betrothal language here. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. (laughs) And the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. See, he's letting them know. Where are you going? You know. You know the way. You guys should have known where I'm going. I'm going back with Pops. He was going to the Father. Why? Because he just told us in his Father's house there are many mansions and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If they were paying attention, they would have known he's going back to his Father's house to build a place for us. This is part of the betrothal here. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we'll jump over to 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. This is the sinner loaf. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. That doesn't happen at the Seder. This is brand new. He's letting him know in this betrothal meal, part of the price for me to be able to have you as my bride is I have to, I have to be the Lamb of God that John the Baptist proclaimed. And my body is going to, my price, this is, I'm going to put my love on display. Broken. Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to encourage you, whenever you're eating bread of any kind, remember, break it. If somebody makes you a sandwich, just, just tear Break it a little bit. Why? Because I'm doing this in remembrance of my bridegroom king. And it's an opportunity to do something in this tangible physical world that strikes fear in the kingdom of darkness. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Why does he tell us after supper? Because we need to know the cup that he's, that he's talking about. See, he poured the cup. And see, the last cup is the cup of blessing. Okay? And you, you usually have a saucer underneath, and you pour it until it overflows. My cup runneth over. 
That's where that comes from, is the last cup of the Passover, Passover Seder meal. And so it's that cup, the cup that runs over with blessing and spills out on the table. It's supposed to spill and be messy. Why? Because what he is giving us as part of this betrothal covenant isn't supposed to just remain in us. It's supposed to spill over and spread out to the world. And so he chose this cup way in the past because it was pointing to something right now. My cup runneth over. Okay? The, the cup of the... In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you drink from this cup, do it remembering me. Why? Because if it's Shabbat, rest in his presence. And at Shabbat, you drink from the cup and you, you have your cup at Shabbat. I'm remembering that it's my betrothed bridegroom lover that I'm resting in. Take a day we can do it. When you're celebrating the feasts, right now is Feast of Tabernacles. Did you guys know that? It started at sundown Friday. We're in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, I wish I had another hour. But <laughs> we're in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. This, oops, sorry. This body right here, the Hebrew word for it is the same as tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling. This, the Feast of Tabernacles has the same, same powerful significance that the Passover did. It's not a Jewish thing. He wants to, See, there was the tent of meeting in the Old Testament where Moses would go in and he would meet with God and he would come out with his face glowing. He went into the tabernacle of God. Okay? And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles because God was tabernacling amongst His people. Right? And then... See, he says, hey, when you, I'm going to take you into a place that has cities and everything else, but I want you to continue to celebrate this because it's not yet fully fulfilled. He wants to come tabernacle. God said he would come and tabernacle him. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.